0: If the corporate entity is willing to choose the correct metrics upon which to base their judgment of performance, performance, then it could be awesome. If they continue to use the inappropriate metrics to make those decisions, they will ruin veterinary medicine.
1: From Vetex International, this is Blundi-Section, I'm Dave Nickel on today's show, I'm joined by an incredible woman who's genuinely making a difference in veterinary medicine, Dr. Betsy Charles. Betsy is the executive director of the Veterinary Leadership Institute, which allows her to combine her passion for veterinary medicine, leadership development, teaching, and communication. After graduating from Washington State University's College of Veterinary Medicine in 2003 and completing an internship with an equine referral hospital, Betsy joined a performance horse practice as an associate vet. She went on to become the imaging center director and also the practices extern program. In 2009, she completed a master's degree in organizational leadership where her thesis dealt with change efforts within organizations, specifically veterinary practices. She's also an adjunct professor at Washington State University and a member of the American Association of Equine Practitioners Leadership Development Committee and Student Programs Task Force. Now, before we get into the interview, instead of a sponsor, I'd like to dedicate this episode to all of the brave souls fighting to save animal and human lives in Australia as the worst bushfires and living memory rage in particular highlight the plight of many of our veterinary colleagues whose businesses and livelihoods are under threat due to losing their client base or expending precious resources helping to care for injured wildlife that will never pay their bills let's not forget the horror of having to see and deal with so many injured or maimed or dead animals this fire is really not like the rest and our friends down under need our help so if you want to give please go to theava.com.au forward slash donate and give what you can to the Benevolent Fund Thank You. Now back to the show. Betsy is passionate, honest, and authentic, which really comes across in this podcast. We cover an incredible range of important topics from the bullying culture of education and medicine to why fear of failure is crippling the industry. But most movingly, she shares her story of love with her husband, Drake an incredible figure of light who she lost to ALS in January 2019. For many reasons, this podcast will move you. To call it one of my favourites would be crass. The subject matter is heavy and I'll warn you in advance you're going to need tissues. But if you need proof that even if the darkest of nights there shines a light of hope, then this episode is for your soul. Sit back and prepare for this, my conversation, with the brave, inspiring, smart and funny, Dr. Betsy Charles. But how's about we go for a big round of applause for, for Bessie Charles. Thank you. So that was a rousing welcome. Yes. So this, this is the first ever live version, broadcastable
2: version. We did do one other, but it wasn't quite broadcastable. Thanks, Mary. And so I'm delighted. Thank you to everyone who's come out. We're here in Kansas City in uh, the wonderful United States of America. Um, and delighted to be joined on this rather experimental version of Blunt Dissection by the wonderful Dr. Betsy Charles. Thank
0: you. An honor to be here. Super excited.
2: Well, no, no I'm, I'm very pleased to have you. Betsy, usually start just by asking a few questions and, and just really getting to know a bit about you and your journey okay. into veterinary practice. What sucked you into the gravity well of veterinary medicine, and when did
0: it start? When did it start? So I... I am the eldest daughter of a first-generation immigrant. So my father is from Sri Lanka. And when you are the eldest child of a first-generation immigrant, you have two choices about what you can do when you grow up. Uh, you can be a lawyer or you can be a doctor. Right. And so from a very early age, and I don't like law, and I don't like debate, and I love medicine. And so from the time I was a little tiny child, I was very interested in medicine, human medicine specifically. I have a chart, I guess they can't see. I have a chart that's probably six inches thick. Because I would hurt myself on purpose to go to the doctor and I would tell the nurses which room to put me in because I knew which one had the model of the heart that I could take apart. Did, and so.
2: did your parents ever get called into social services? No, they didn't. But I,
0: like, I, there was one time where I just, I really wanted to have a cast. I had never had a cast before, but I didn't want to break my arm or my leg because I was an athlete. And so I tried to break my finger. And it didn't really work, and so I just they just buddy taped it to the next one, so it was very how, disappointing.
2: How, uh, no, like I've, this isn't very much about veterinary medicine and more self harm. But how did yeah. you? How <laughs> did you go about breaking your finger? Was it a the like, worst? No, or? no,
0: no. I was just gonna, I was just gonna break it, and I chickened oh. out. Yeah, but I just I just wanted to have a cast, so, so, I, so I hadn't you had didn't, that you yet. You didn't manage to break it. I sprained it. You sprained it. Just yeah, like, I sprained it, but I didn't break it. Oh boy. Uh, but so I was always intrigued by science and medicine and how does the body work right. and so that was so medicine was a natural fit for me. Fast forward, went all the way through undergrad. I was an athletic trainer. So I wanted to be a family physician. So I was an athlete, soccer player, and a track athlete when I was in high school. And so I wanted to be a family practitioner who knew something about sports medicine. Right. And so I went, I was pre-med, 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 and then I decided I'll be an athletic trainer to get the sports medicine part of it. I mean, this is kind of a long story, but it, I think it's... This, this is a
2: long-form podcast. Okay, so you awesome. Go on, like, if they all go home, I'll still be talking. Okay, this cool, cool.
0: And so I, it was a time... AIDS was a big deal, yep. and I remember they called all of us student trainers, so we, my claim to fame, I have two claims to fame, In terms, I went to Washington State, I was an athletic trainer at Washington State when Drew Bledsoe was there, so I taped Drew Bledsoe's ankle, so that's kind of cool, and then if you're from California, I was also there when Ryan Leaf was a football player, he has since become a, a better human being than he was when he was at Washington State, but I, um, I remember they brought us all in and they said we have two players, who are HIV positive. We're not going to tell you who they are. And it just upped the stress level a little bit for us. You know, we're 19, 20 years old. We're trying to be safe. Then I, and as an athletic trainer, you have the GPs and the surgeons who come into the training room and they do office hours. And I started asking the physicians, like, what do you love about medicine? What do you want? You know, what do I need to know? And they all said, don't do it. And so I couldn't find anybody who was really interested in medicine. And so I remember I came home one day. I'd applied to medical school. I was getting all my secondary applications back. And I came home one day and I said to my husband, what am I going to do if I get in? And he's like, you're going to go? Like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go to medical school. I, I, I just don't. It's about paperwork and insurance. It's not about taking care of people. I don't want to do it. And so I totally withdrew everything had no clue what I was going to do. And so my husband had a great job. He was a vice president of a basketball camp company. And he was loving his job. And I was just home hanging out. Right. And I, I was driving him a little bit crazy. And he's like, baby, you've got to find something to do. You're making me nuts. Go get a job. Were, you,
2: were you like snapping other bits yeah. of your body at that <laughs> yeah. point?
0: Yeah. I don't want to be a doctor anymore. I don't know what I'm going to do. He said, go get a job. So I looked in the want ads. I answered a, an ad at the Spokane Club which is a little athletic club in the town that I was living in and they had a fitness room attendant job. And so I was like, okay, I can do this. I'm an athletic trainer. I can go do this. And so the woman who interviewed me were sitting in her office and she said, "You are way overqualified for this job, but if you want it, you can be a fitness room attendant." And I said, "Okay, cool." And I noticed that she had a picture of herself on a horse jumping over jumps and I had always been a horse lover but lived in the city didn't ever ride horses except right. on a family vacation trail ride and I said oh you ride horses and she's like, oh yeah I jump I you know travel around and do show jumping and I was like oh that's so cool and I got gaga and she said well I have a riding lesson today why don't you come with me it's weird to me because I had just met her right and so I said really she's like yeah come out to the barn so I went out to the barn with her and I was hook line sinker this is what I, I want to be out here at the barn. So fast forward, within a month or so, I was a groom for the trainer. I couldn't get a horse from the stall to the cross ties without getting stepped on.
2: Which presumably satisfied deeply your need for personal injury.
0: Yes. Yes, <laughs> totally. Totally. Right? So I started working for the trainer. Right. She got seven warm bloods that had been out in this lady's pasture Four, three, four year old horses, never been broke, never been touched. So I learned very quickly <laughs> oh, how to be around, like, like crazy stories about almost needing to go to the emergency room, all kinds of things. I feel like no longer want to go to the doctor, right? Like I'm good, no longer going to <laughs> You're the like, doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a level of
2: what makes you go to the doctor that is just unacceptably high yes. risk, right? Yes. Like untrained, warm bloods yes. being right in that. 1,500 category.
0: pound horses that. You walk into the stall and they freak out, and they're angry, and they're gonna kill you. Yeah, yes. So I started doing that. I started riding. I leased a horse. By the time, I mean, it's a it was a very steep learning curve. And then, yeah, sorry. Go ahead.
2: No, I'm going to pause you there because these are the things that fascinate me about all of our journeys. So you've walked in zero, like overqualified in the athletic space to do to do this trainer, and now you're getting kicked apart by horses. How did you convince her? to to take a chance on you to do that like what what was that all
0: about or would do, like she invited i you was willing ride. to work for no money <laughs> because i was so enamored like i and so sue my friend like sue is she she had this amazing horse i started i was her groom i was hanging out with her it's her trainer who she's been friends with forever right and i'm just i'm a hard worker i'm smart i'll do a good job and so she was like okay I, and she'd just gotten all these crazy horses in, so she needed help. And so then she started paying me. Yep. And then within probably a month or so of being there, the veterinarian came out to castrate a horse for another trainer in the barn. Okay. And I was like, oh, my gosh, same medicine, no sick people, <laughs> crazy people. Now I know. But no sick people, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I, and then I was just like, this, this, is, what I'm, this is what I'm meant to do. It's, it just made sense. And it's interesting because my husband, and he and I started dating when we were in high school, he said when we were undergrads, he's like, have you ever thought about veterinary medicine? Because you love animals and you're crazy about animals. I think that would be, that makes more sense. But I had, it grilled into me. You're going to be a physician. And my dad was a typical hard driving. you know, I bring home all A's and an A-minus. He's going to talk to me about the A-minus. You know, I am trying out for the soccer team as a freshman he's like you better make varsity and then i i mean our our team was really good we played in the state tournament i'm like i'm not going to make varsity as a freshman oh yes i did what was the first question he asked me when i got home are you starting within three games i was starting so that's the kind of pushing so if i so when drake says you should be a veteran and go to veteran, and i'm like well that's not a real doctor (laughs) yeah. <laughs> and I can't let my dad down, right? And when I found out I got into vet school, that was the first question he asked me. Do you wanna, aren't you, don't you want to be a real doctor? So, well, that, so I'm just giving you some... some no,
2: I like it. Um, so I've got two questions there. One was, how did you answer that question? Because you, you clearly are here now. Yeah. And the second question is... How did that relationship play out, and and how have you have you channeled that in, in ways that have been beneficial to you? that's, that's, that's totally. it sounds quite overbearing, to me. and I think I yes. had quite an, you know quite a, a driven dad who just was yep. perpetually disappointed by how much of a moron he'd spawned. And um <laughs> um, but I think he eventually sort of gave in to that reality and, and just you know put up with the fact that you know he was a PhD. He was you know, very uh, not by the book because he's a complete rebel on one hand, but then mm-hmm. in, when it comes to science and logic, he's basically Spock in other ways. This is a weird sort of combination thing. And I'm and I'm like almost the complete opposite. I'm more like James T. Kirk and Mm -hmm. just like (laughs) random as hell, you know. Yeah. So how did your parents influence you? And and what were the lasting influences that have served you through
0: your career? Yeah, so I think that my I was very fortunate in that I married somebody who was exactly the opposite of my father and I married him very young. Right. So by the time that I was going through, so he and I got married when we were barely 20, so still in undergrad. And so he started to speak truth about who I was, which is you're enough. You have what it takes. You're very smart. And so he was starting by the time I was making that decision to go to veterinary school, Drake was starting to speak a different message than the one I had heard my whole life, right. which is you're not good enough. You don't have what it takes. You've got to work harder. I'm disappointed in you. My father... He passed away probably four, I think it's four, five years ago. Yep. Never told me he was proud of me. And so, But there's another story I can tell about the, his funeral that actually brought some healing for me in that. But so I had already started, I already started to have a husband who was telling me a different message. And so when you asked the question, what did you say to your dad when he said, are you sure you don't want to be a real doctor? And I said, you're still going to be able to call me doctor. And I hung up the phone. So I was getting to the point, er, you know, there. But it, I mean, it's a lifetime of messages of you're not good enough, you don't have what it takes. Yeah. It wasn't until fast forward, I got into my master's program and I started looking at some patterns in my life through an activity that one of my professors did. That I started to see this pattern of I'm constantly looking for a father figure to gain my worth from.
2: Tell us. So that was an exercise you did. W- w- that in was my master's
0: program, so I have a master's in organizational so t-
2: leadership. Right. So tell us, and that's a bit of a segue off. Then, sure, but This is pretty sure. typical blunt dissection. God knows where we'll end up. Sure. Um, but tell us, tell us about that because that sounds like quite an interesting tool that you have. Absolutely. And and
1: hands, and it, up, hands up, who's carrying any sort of issues, you know, for they're dealing with from their parents at any point in their lives, <laughs> right? Like, so who's not right.
2: carrying that stuff?
0: Totally. So when we, so when I did my master's. Um, my husband and I did it together and yep. that was unusual for them to let a husband and wife be in a, in a cohort of a master's program together. Right. We convinced them somehow that we would be able to handle it. But what was interesting about that, he, both he and I were at points in our jobs where we we're taking on more leadership responsibilities, et cetera. We got into the program. We're like, sweet. We're going to learn tips and techniques that are going to help us tell other people to do what the heck we want them to do. This is going to be amazing. Well, then you get into the program and the whole first year is all about me. And what do I bring to the table? What kind of leader am I? And so the professor that I'm talking about, he taught a course that was called personal leadership. Yep. And he did these things that he called, quote, activating experiences. So the activity, we have since, I've since kind of modified it. We now do it in our leadership program at the VLI. Yep. Um, But it was, it's an activity where you you get post-it notes and you write down your whole life on post-it notes. And there's some prompts about who are the people, the places, the things that were meaningful in your life. And then they, they, uh, we go through it and we try to um, just organize our life into chapters that make sense to us. Huh. And so it's this visual representation of your life and the important events and the things that matter, the people that matter things that have had influence in shaping who you are to this point.
2: So those are the chapters like that mm-hmm. y- you create your own chapters. It's yeah. not it's not a linear.
0: Nope, it could whatever makes sense, whatever to, makes you, sense so to you, so you have the freedom to kind of make sense of your story the way that makes sense to so you. So how did
2: you organize your your
0: So on? I kind of organized it into these educational experiences, job experiences. So for me and it was pretty linear, but what emerged from that So so you start out with all the same color sticky notes, and then you trade out, okay, so you'll say, okay, you have five red sticky notes. Who are the most important people, whether positive or negative, who have influenced your life? And so you start trading out with these bright colored sticky notes. And so what I noticed when I have all these sticky notes out on the table, there's this pattern like, oh, there's Mark Smaha, who was the head athletic trainer when I was at Washington State. Then I get out into, I get to, um, I started after, after I had met the veterinarian, so his name was Frosty Franklin. He came out to the barn. Very shortly after I met him, I was working for him. So Frosty Franklin is one of those people. And then after that, I became um, Bob Schneider at once I got into vet school. And then it was Rick DeBose. And then it was, so there's this pattern of men, older father figure men in my life that I'm trying to gain approval from. Right. Right. And I have a very good friend, Kathy Ruby. She was the first psychologist who was hired out of vet school. She was hired at Washington State. Her first year was my first year. And so we were kind of processing this together. I'm like, Kathy, there's all these, there's this pattern in my life. And she says, if you don't figure out how to stop that, That's it's going to keep, you're going to find another and another and another. And so I said, I'm done. I'm yep. done. Where does my worth come from? It doesn't come from a father figure telling me I'm okay. And so I had to wrestle with that. How did
2: you how did you go about wrestling with that? And and where did it take you next?
0: Lots of conversation, lots of prayer, lots of just reflection and writing. Um, conversations again with a husband who was exactly the opposite. His right. message is I love you no matter what. I love you for who you are. You I don't care if you go to medical school, veterinary school, I don't care if all you do is sit at home. I mean you have to have some sort of job so you don't drive me totally crazy <laughs> but I mean he didn't really he didn't really care what I was doing right. so he loved me solely because I'm a person and he loved me I didn't have to achieve right, right. so for me it was about I need to achieve and once I've achieved enough then somebody'll say I'm okay right and so it was just conversation and really learning and having some significant failure in my life being okay with that um I love what Sue said this morning right you have to be the way my CrossFit trainer tells me, you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. And so learning how to be uncomfortable and being okay with that. And how, just having conversations around that. And great friends and community that was allowing me to explore those things.
2: Do you have any, and you can you can maybe take this as a part A and a part B question, but you mentioned failure there. And failure comes it comes up and again and again Mm -hmm. in the conversation these podcasts um do you have any for want of a better way of putting it like favorite failures that that you really grew from and and gained or just successes you know because we always think like like the hard lessons are the tough lessons but you can still learn from great experiences as well right and we can we can underplay the value of of a game well played as well right so you can take a bite either or both or whatever you want Yeah, so for do.
0: me, the failures were getting past my written boards in radiology. And so, and I remember the day, right? That I remember the day. So I did my resident, I did a non-traditional residency, which I yep. don't recommend yep. because I had nobody to really mentor me.
2: Were you in private practice at the time? So Yeah, Is so I when
0: I, just a professional kind of timeline for me. So I went to vet school, graduated from vet school, went um, at Washington State. Went down to Southern California, did an equine internship at a re- very prominent equine referral hospital yep. in Southern California. Hated it. It was the worst year of my life. <laughs> and then went, almost left veterinary medicine. Thank you, Kathy Ruby, for talking me off the ledge and, and allowing, you know, convincing me that oh, I w- I shouldn't absolute stay. absolute
2: pause for a second. Yeah. How did she talk you off the ledge?
0: What she said, she you need, we have this program, it's called the Veterinary Leadership Experience You Can Become. Okay. And so that experience, that experience totally changed my whole perception of what veterinary medicine could be. Okay. So, and then I did a year of private practice in an ambulatory truck. I don't don't like being a generalist. I want to be really good at something. And so got a job at a performance horse practice doing very high level lameness and imaging. Did that for seven years. Tried to buy in, couldn't buy in. I'm getting paid like, or I'm getting, I'm working like a radiologist, reading films like a radiologist, doing everything else like a radiologist, not getting paid like a radiologist. Hard because... Doing an imaging residency means small animal and I'm a horse girl. Yeah. So I had to make that decision. So then, but didn't want to leave my, didn't want to separate from my husband and go do a residency apart from him. Yeah. So we came up with a plan to do an alternative track residency. Okay. So that's a challenge. I I know now having gone through it, why nobody wants to do, or all the people who have gone through it say, don't do it because it was really hard. Right. So when I got ready to take my boards i i didn't pa- i shouldn't i probably shouldn't have sat the first year and i di- and i wasn't i didn't feel super comfortable talking about it because i hadn't i just i wasn't comfortable in my skin 100 percent yet yep. the second time i didn't pass i was just like okay how long did that take to go through that process well so four it took me four times and that's four years mm-hmm. oh yeah because you can only take it Right. Well, now they've changed it where you can take it again in December, but you can only take It's only offered once a year. Yeah. Well, that's commitment. Totally. You're after I it. guess. Yeah. So well, it's interesting, right? Because I remember the first time. Yep. That I and it probably wasn't until I passed, finally, that I started talking about the failures openly. Yeah. And so I remember. So the third time I took it, one of my mentors said, "You missed by twelve, twelve questions." Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, and then when I finally passed the fourth the fourth try one of my mentors total guru said to me well you know it took me two times to pass the written um i'm sorry maybe you should have told me that last year when i was having conversations with you about i don't have what it takes i'm not sure blah 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 he's like and this is what he said he's been in practice 40 years i don't want people to think less of me oh yeah 40 years he's been in practice and i'm like dude nobody cares (laughs) But he didn't, he didn't, he didn't want to tell me that he had struggled. And so from that point, I remember just like it was yesterday, the day that I stopped saying, I struggled to pass my boards. Because what does that communicate? Leaves it open to how many times it took me to pass my boards. Mm -hmm. To the day that I said, it took me four tries to pass my written boards. That was a huge step for me in, in front of a veterinary audience to admit, because what do people think? well she's not very good and i would argue actually i'm really stinking good at physics now i'll give any radiologist to run for their money on right. physics now because i know how to do that but it it told me something about our profession right like i can't stand up in front of you and say it took me four tries to pass my boards You'll be honest now when i go to my oral i decided i'm going to do this very transparently and i'm i know i'm not going to pass the first time i take it and so i did this whole facebook thing like yeah. i'm going to you know growth mindset and i learned so much that's when i the, during that process that four years is when i discovered brene brown and shame and vulnerability and all these things and so and at vli we're interested in those things and so i did this whole public facebook thing like I, and then i got all these messages on my public on my feed whatever you call that oh this is great thank you da, 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 da. and then i got maybe 20 plus private messages private messages now right well, you know, it took me three times to pass my boards. You know, I haven't passed the NAVLE. So all these people, but they don't put it, they don't say it publicly. Right. But they're willing to talk to me about it privately. And I still have people that come up and talk to me and say, I'm struggling, Bessie, because I'm not sure if I can get past my boards. I don't know. You know, everybody, it's, it's all these messages. Everybody's disappointed. Well, are they? I don't know. Is that your own message? I'm not sure. But we have a profession that doesn't allow for a growth mindset right Right. so my whole my whole philosophy is now failure is just an opportunity to learn and I'm so much better at what I do because of all those opportunities I've had to learn
2: first, first attempt to at yeah. learning right. second or right as I was say I'm a much better driver because I failed my driving yeah. test first time yeah. right now true I would have maimed people down the first time
0: like. yeah so and but that's a process right it's a process of Learning what does it mean that that's a core value. Authenticity is one of my core values, and right. so if I can't walk the talk, then I shouldn't be doing. I shouldn't be the executive director of the VLI if I can't put myself out there and be an example and a role model for what does it look like to fail and fail fail hard. I shouldn't be chatting with you.
2: <laughs> Conversation could go in lots of different branches sure. here. I'm, sure. I'm I'm dwelling on the the part where you say professions not set up for growth mindset can you explain a little bit more of what you mean by that and also perhaps some of the mechanisms in place that that cause that to be the case
0: yeah so in my as we set up my non-traditional residency um, my program director was the radiologist at Western University of Health Sciences and so as we when I found somebody who was willing to be my program director and then we set up the program so I'm going to do rotations at Washington State, Colorado State, and with a uh, radiologist in private practice. But then the way that I'm going to get my salary paid is I'm going to be 50% resident, 50% faculty member. And so I began to teach. So I was responsible for teaching during the all the time that I was in my residency. And then I stayed on at Western for four years following completion of my residency. And so you get to see things from the other side, right? right. Like what are we doing? What kinds of environments are we creating in veterinary school. And to me, I think a lot of that, a lot of it stems from the culture of education in medicine, whether that's human medicine or veterinary medicine, right? It's a bullying culture, it's a shaming culture, it's a very hierarchical top-down culture. And so you learn that, and now because of what I do with VLI, I get to go talk to students about leadership. And then I'm all I'm also every time I go to a school because they have no money to pay for these kinds of talks, I say, I'll do as much as I possibly can. So, and if I can talk about imaging and if I can talk about imaging and horses, I love to do that. And so I'm going to do leadership and then I'm also going to talk about imaging. But you sit in these classrooms and you say, okay, I'll put up an image and I say, like, tell me what you see. And it's just crickets.
2: Right. Everyone's afraid to look silly. And so, and s-
0: yeah. And so I, I'm like, okay, like tell me what you see. Crickets again. Okay, I'm good to just sit here and wait. And so then one girl in the front raises her hand and she says, we don't do that here. <sighs> well, what do you mean you don't do that here? We don't put ourselves out there because we know we'll get thrashed if we don't have the right answer. So it's way too risky to put yourself out there. And we know if we just wait, the professor will get frustrated and then they'll tell us what we're the, supposed
2: to see. So the professors have, don't have that skill of. Coaching, and also they have the, 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 the bully mindset. It was yes. so
1: interesting.
0: And I the, don't think it's all. And we're in a shift, but all it takes is one or two faculty members that create that super threatening, intimidating environment. Yeah. And it just shuts down any attempt at a growth mindset right. kind that, of thing.
2: That's being played out beyond the universities. And we had a conversation in our last session. Uh, I don't know if the person that was here was explaining that, where a team member, they had a, a an associate doctor who she was afraid to show them what she didn't know. And that shows up in the workplace in some pretty negative behaviors, as in, okay, I, I won't ask for help with this thing. I will wing it. Totally. Or I'll, actually, I'm not going to choose that treatment option because I actually don't know how to do that. Absolutely. Maybe, maybe the cancer treatment or something. Like, that would be, in my head, I'd be like, ooh. I remember having thoughts like, yeah, that lymphoma protocol or whatever, I'm totally, totally down with sure, that. Yeah. And so maybe I'm not. That's not going to be the treatment option. And I'd I rather do out. nothing right. than be wrong. Right. It, well, right. Well, I know I'm wrong pretty frequently, yeah. so I'm good with that. I right. I was blessed with that particular yeah. gene, no problems. But it, it it shows up. It's just super interesting to see that. If that's unchecked where does that end up as a leader I mean is that that turns into blind spots or
0: blind spots and I think it just it turns into an inability or an unwillingness to take risks and un, an unwillingness to be innovative and creative I think and I think that what was most fascinating to me about being in my master's program I was the only person in healthcare in my cohort and there's about 15 people in my cohort yep. and what was fascinating to me was to, to look at all these other industries and all these other people in, in all kinds of things, not medicine, but in service industries, in manufacturing, all these things. And what I realize is we in medicine, and I say medicine because I think human and veterinary medicine are very similar in their in their, the way that they train. We're 70, 50 to 75 years behind what everybody else is doing, right? And so the, the companies and the organizations that are moving forward and are innovative. They're like, fail fast and fail often, yeah. right? Because that's how we're going to keep moving forward. And we don't do that at all. Now, I, I'm totally aware that we've got some life or death situations. But in the big scheme of things, yeah. most of the time, a decision that I make is not going to result in the life or death of the patient, right? So we, we have opportunity. And there's so many ways that we can train that allow people to make decisions that, that are not life and death.
2: What are some of the ways that, that you know, anyone, in, you know, if you're in private practice, you're an owner, uh, a leader, team leader, whatever, um, or or just finding your feet? What are some of the ways that, that you would recommend to you know fail fast, fail often, that controls that element of risk or gets people over the fear of doing that? I can imagine people are like
0: <gasps> totally can't fail, and I think and I, I think it is it you know it gets down to Brene Brown she's my BFF. Like I've read everything she's written. I've read, she, it's about shame and vulnerability. Like, can you understand, like, what is it that's causing me to not want to try? I do think that this is a people problem, but I think in medicine, we've set it up so that it's so hard to be vulnerable and real in our profession. And so until we are ready to do that, I mean, I, I've now, I've spoken in probably 75% of the vet schools in the country, And I often, depending on who's invited me to speak, often I will be having conversations with faculty members about how do you create a a safe learning environment, right? Exactly. And I think that's kind of what I'm known for in the profession, right? Like I have, I, I can create an environment within a talk or whatever, where people are going to be honest and vulnerable. And I think that's just because that's how I am. And so, and I'm not going to belittle you and I'm not going to shame you and I'm not going to call you out or embarrass you. And so I I'm interested in ideas and I'm interested in that, but I've had now at two different schools, when I'm giving this talk to faculty members, had people get up and storm out because they don't like what I I, at, at my own school, After I gave my students a talk about shame and shame resilience. So Brene Brown has a whole theory. She's done a lot of research on how do we become shame resilient. And there's a cycle. So what I tell my students is there's going to be creepy people in the world no matter what. Right. So you're going to have to learn how to deal with creepy people. I can't. You're going to have people who shame you, embarrass you, belittle you. You have to have a strategy for how to handle that. And so that's what I was teaching them—the shame resilience model and what you do and the four steps and how do you do that?
2: Okay, tell us. Tell us what the four steps are. Oh, uh, I knew you, you were going to say them? that.
0: Yeah. So you have to you have to acknowledge. You have to be able to. I can have I can have my friends in the back. Maybe you can help me. But um, so you have to I, you have to know what it is. You yeah. know what are your tri- what are the triggers that cause shame? Yeah. You have to acknowledge those and be able to check like is this real is this a voice you know we all have yep. these voices in our head that speak lies to us. As right like to yeah, yeah 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 <laughs> now we have to check we have to check ourselves like is this is what they're saying true or is it a lie and then once we do that then we have to have a group of people probably a small group that you can have a, a conversation like this is what i heard this is what i'm thinking yeah and then you have to be able to speak it speak yep. shame like i have to be able to talk about that yeah. in order to move forward from it yeah He came to my office. So my art office doors have glass and I saw who it was and he knocked on my door and he's, he's hot. And I'm like, okay, it's on. And he came into, into my room. The people in the audience can see. And he said, I'm like, okay, come in. And he's like, how dare you pointing, almost tapping me on the chest. How dare you teach our students about shame? You're just teaching them to be weak. Okay. With all due respect, I'm not doing that. I'm actually teaching them how to be strong and you need to get out of my office. But that's the kind of hostility mm-hmm. that comes. And so initially I would have said, "Jackass, get get out of my office." But then I, now I know this isn't about me. This is about him. And what does this cause him to what does talking about shame and vulnerability what does that bring up for him? So now I'm much more grace filled, I guess, like this isn't about me. This this is about what's happening in yeah. their life and their inability to talk about their shame. Yeah. So until we can all talk about that, I don't know that anything's gonna shift in veterinary medicine. Until we start to at least start to acknowledge it. You know, I I think that um we have a cohort of um faculty members around the country who are trying to do this. Academia is a huge, huge thing to try to change. I couldn't I couldn't take it I had to leave. Change was happening so slow and I couldn't do it. I'm like, we got to move. We got to move now. And so I think that I think that the people who are in academia trying to create those kinds of environments, I just more power to them because as we do that and, and, it, and I also I often have people say, well, Betsy, you're lowering the bar. No, nope, my bar is very high. I'm just going to be nice. I'm not going to be a jerk and I'm going to help my students get over that bar. The bar has not come down any lower. I have very high expectations. But I'm going to help you be successful and try to find the ways to help you be successful. That, to me, is what we need to move toward in academia. What happens from a leadership standpoint? You, you get stifled. You end up just, well, I can't do it. I'm just going to give up. You, just, you lose your opportunities to because it's too risky. Um.
2: Are there any are there any particular things and I'm talking more broadly about leadership now. Our audience are you know largely largely veterinary leaders or mm-hmm. owners, yeah. managers. Um, have you got any any tips or the most impactful things that that these guys could do take away from our conversation if they put into practice would help? improve things in their lives? Or is there an area in particular in practice that is worth focusing on more than anything?
0: Um, I mean, I know that I, I have an immediate answer. We have to do the hard work of looking at what our own issues are yeah. before we can, and not before, because I think we we have to walk the talk. Yeah. Right, so, I ha- and I have to do the hard work of learning what my triggers are, learning what my history is, you know, and, and what's interesting to me is so when I entered into my master's program, I pretty much thought I'm pretty awesome. My way is the best way. And if you don't look, do it like I do, you're an idiot. Yep. And that's kind of how I approach the world. Now, I, when I say that, I think I'm a little bit more, people would not say that I was like that. I was very good at Couching that in some sort of rah-rah team. But I, really, in, the, you know, in, in my heart, I'm like, I rule. And you guys all need to get on board with my plan.
2: What disc profile are you?
0: Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what my, I'm a D, high D. Yeah, I like I think. I, yeah. I, I, we use Myers-Briggs, so I'm yeah. an ESTJ. Yeah, right. Um, right. And on the Star Wars thing, that makes me Darth Vader. Yeah. Right? So not super <laughs> awesome. Not super awesome.
1: I was going to go with Bill Gates or someone like yeah, that, but you yeah. can go with Darth.
0: That's fine. Yeah, but I, but I felt like I have the answer and yeah. I know. And so what my master's degree did, and so I'm just like, this is going to be awesome and I'm going to learn so many things about myself and just, and, and essentially they're going to tell me how awesome I am. Yeah. Now, what, what was interesting is the only reason that I would participate in a lot of these, quote, remember the activating experiences is right. because I wanted to get a good grade. Right. And then over the course of that first year of my master's program, I started to see, oh, maybe I'm not the only person who has a good idea in the room. Maybe there are other ways that I could look at things. My And so over the course of that first year, we did 37 personality profiles and inventories. Every I know what. Earth, wind, fire, water. I know what animal I am. I know what, I know, like, there's so many things that we did. And what we learned is my husband and I are exactly opposite on almost every, everything. And so I was all, I think this is what happens in a lot of significant other relationships, right? You're attracted to the opposite. That's super exciting for the first year-ish or so. And then you spend the next several years trying to turn them into you because you don't know how to deal with something that's different. Yeah. And so I am very thankful for where we, when we started our master's, I think we'd been married 15, 17 years, something like that. Um, And so it was one of those things where I was like, oh my gosh, like he just does, it's not right or wrong. He just does things differently than I do them. And if I really want to be effective in my leadership, I need to recognize there's a lot of people in the world that I'm going to interact with that are like him and not like me. And so how do I learn how to? So it was this. Initially, I started because I wanted a good grade, and then I just kind of got broken down, and I started to become much more self-aware. That in via at VLI, that's one of the most difficult skills for us to teach is self-awareness. Yep. And so how we're always trying to think of how do we help people become self-aware. For me, it happened in my master's program. Yep. And that started me on a journey um, toward understanding myself better. And then once I so you the question you asked is what can as leaders in our practices do get to know yourself so then you can walk the talk and help others go
2: it feels like it it almost needs profound experience to almost um you know it's like beating out a sword and hot flame and an anvil and just the work and the energy that goes into that feels like something similar because certainly for me you know, what you're saying is resonating a lot mm-hmm. because I was like, I'm thinking, oh God, you're actually describing me at the start yeah. of my career as well. Yeah. And certainly my initial steps in leadership were very much like that. It's, I have an idea. That's the way it's going to be. We do it this way. Um, and it took, for me, it took getting to a point of, and I would never have admitted this at the time, but it was burnout that I was mm-hmm. headed toward. And it just so happened I had a career break. I could go to Australia to not fess up to the fact that. I was actually pretty close to burned out. And I I knew, deep down, I knew what I was doing wasn't sustainable. And it was that that sort of moment and being able to detach and then just go up into the Andes walking and have a great trip through Central America. And a really transformative experience where I still had no idea what leadership meant, but I'd started to work out what it wasn't. Yeah. And and that started a journey. Which Actually, there's a great question from... I, ask, I asked on Instagram to get some questions from any oh, awesome. members of the audience or, or from people who might be vaguely inter- interested in leadership. So one of the questions that we've gotten asked is... It's a great question. Thomas says, I love the white, white girl pose. Presumably I was pulling what is described as a white girl pose on the Instagram page that I put on. I don't know what that is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to look at my Instagram stream for that. i have a feeling that's like some American cultural reference that um, either I have I've, no, either I have I've just no stepped on the world's that... largest landmine and blown myself out of the water, or or anyway. So she says she wants to know what makes a bad leader and who what she should run from. Like define, like how do we define? So actually, so this this question resonated with me because for a lot of the times it's actually a lot easier to define. It's hard to define what, what good, good leadership, leadership is, is. Or right. indeed what leadership is. So there's mm-hmm. there's I'm gonna do a typical Dave Blunder section question. What, how does Betsy Charles line leadership um, what are the what should one not do to you know to what should one not do to be a good leader, or how does one be a bad leader? And what should we do? Is it just as simple as do the opposite? Like yeah,
0: or- those are that's a good, those are great ideas. And so for me, the way I define leadership is it's a it's a pretty textbook definition. And at VLI, we think about this a lot. And so it comes from um, kind of a seminal text that's used in most leadership programs around the country. It, it says leadership is a process whereby an individual or a group of individuals influences somebody toward a common goal. So to me, that's like the break. That's the basics, you know, we've got people, followers, a goal, the leader is the person who gets them to that. I think that there are a lot of ways to do that. And so for, for us and for me, and this is part of why VLI and I get along so well, is we subscribe to a leadership um, model that's servant leadership. And so if I'm doing, so for me, that means I'm going to do, I'm going to know myself well enough and I'm going to know my team so that I know what my, what I bring to the table. I know what they bring to the table. And then I'm going to help whatever our common goal is that we've defined, we've defined, not I've defined, we've defined together, whatever that common goal is, I'm going to do whatever I can do to help them reach that goal. If I'm doing my job right, they don't even know that I'm doing. So for me, and that's hard for me because I like to be one of my love languages of words of affirmation, and you're awesome and amazing. So that's hard for me because oftentimes my team or the people that I'm leading don't recognize what I've done to help equip, set up the success, and that's hard because I have to sit back and 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 now I'm learning. And again, I don't know if we'll get to this, but my life the changes in my life over this last 3 years have shown me that it is it is much more satisfying to watch somebody else succeed than it is to succeed myself and so learning how to be super excited about that so who do you who do you want to work for i want to work for somebody like that who's going to help me who's going to recognize my strengths can see how i fit on the team who's going to again be vulnerable and authentic and transparent and help us achieve whatever it is we- Cheap. i i do a, fi- a little bit of consulting and private practices i it is very rare to find that advantage. to find teams where it, it we work out of an abundance mentality it's always scarcity and fear right, and rea- right. reactive Reaction. instead Far of fine. proactive yep. and so if you can find a, a team where you you are valued you're it's not a shaming bullying kinds of kind of situation those are the kinds of people that I I often say think of a time when you worked for somebody who it was amazing you know you get to that you know we can go through that all the stages of you know there's forming norming storming transforming in group process and whenever a new person enters the team or somebody leaves the team we have to go through that process again but think of a time where you were on a team where it was transformative and and you just were in the zone that's good leadership. And, and, then we, and then what I'll do is I'll say, okay, what was it about that leader that caused you to feel that way or that team? And then it often comes down to authenticity. They listen. They valued my opinion. Not necessarily that they did everything that I said, but they listened to me. Those kinds of things. Right. We, in the 21st century, and especially with the millennial generation coming up, top-down hierarchical, hierarchical leadership does not work. So, that, and that's medicine.
2: Right, right. And that, yeah, they find house of cards. All yeah. Of those. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's a
0: collaborative yeah. together kind of model. And we are losing millennials and we're losing, they're leaving veterinary medicine because they can't find those teams.
2: Well, there's a big question then. So how do we, I mean, how do we keep them? Because that's our supply. That's our pipeline. That's our future. How do we stop that? because we't we we don't have we have a recruitment problem but it's a retention crisis right 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 so how do we stop that what more can we do what more I'm always asking more
0: yeah yeah I think it is a I, and of course I've,
2: I've got a subpart okay. of the question okay corporatization seems like it's coming UK we're about 60% corporatized yeah. we're predicting you know that, I was speaking to the CEO of one of the big corporates over there he's expecting 80 percent corporatization. Over the next, certainly in, in the next five years, is probably a long yeah, range yeah. estimate for when that happens. Because private equity money is just sloshing around the UK at the minute. That's a change that's going to come here as well, yes. friend or foe. I, I don't want to throw you under the bus with a question. That's okay by because that as I well, I, though, I do
0: have strong opinions about this. Yeah. just based does, on does it
2: help our pipeline? Is that part of the issue that we're starting to experience?
0: If the corporate <laughs> entity is willing to choose the correct metrics yep. upon which to base their judgment of judgment performance, of performance yep. then it could be awesome. Fine. If they continue to use the inappropriate metrics to make those decisions, they will ruin veterinary medicine. What are the How's that for profound?
2: What? I'll leave it hanging. Yeah. <laughs> what are the inappropriate and what are the appropriate metrics
0: so i would say that the inappropriate metrics are average client transaction dollars 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 numbers of clients seen this 15 minute appointment thing is the most ridiculous thing i've ever heard of in my life
2: so you know, you numbers
0: metrics
2: loads of practices in the uk
0: are still in 10 minute appointment 10 minute
2: and we wonder why we're burning out grass. Totally.
0: Absolutely. And when you look at the data, we are predominantly a profession of people who have a preference for introversion. And so, detail. Yes. So now you're going to take somebody who is drained and the life sucked out of them by 10-minute appointments, back to back, See back to back, people, every, day, people, every, day, every, day, every day, every day, every day, every day. And I I just don't, that's the, that's inappropriate. To me, there's one metric, one metric that you have to look at. And it's retention. Yep. I will. Employee retention. What's your, how much turnover do you have? Because if you look at turnover, answers the question. They want to stay. So then you got, then what is it that they, so then you have to listen. You have to give them the opportunities to. Like We know this in other industries. We know that if you take care of the client, average transaction comes. Yep. There's always a dip before the rise. And most corporate can't handle the dip. And so they panic and get reactive. And in veterinary medicine, I think it's huge. They can't handle the dip. Ride out the dip. Train, support, encourage, get that turnover down, and then the rise will be so much bigger than it ever been.
2: And you're in control if I'm understanding you right, of how long that dip lasts, because that is the metric of your
0: leadership skills, totally. right? So it's going it costs money mm-hmm. to get your people to that point, but once you get them there, I I just had a conversation with a um, well, not just it as it's been several months, my time frame kind of gets, um, but she I was um, facilitating a panel at the wellness summit. Uh, I forget what school we were at. I can't remember. Or I think it was in. Sh- maybe anyway not important Um, and so I was facilitating a panel of female practice owners who were doing interesting innovative things for their practices and so I and I didn't know the um, practitioners well we'd had some email back and forth and I said these are kind of the questions I'm thinking about blah 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 and so I remember when I met them face to face One of them walked in, and I'm mad at my initial response when I saw her. So she walked in. She had long blonde hair. She was stunningly beautiful. And that's the first thing I noticed about her. And then I was pissed at myself because I'm like, that's like totally everything that you teach people not to notice about a female. You know, like I'm not thinking, I wonder if she's smart. I wonder if she's, I'm," I'm like, wow, she's a really beautiful person. And so she sits down. And so I'm asking all, and so she's sitting right next to me. And I say, okay, tell me, what are you doing? What's innovative in your practice? and she said well i we value family so i hired a nanny and so all of my employees have child care and then i bought a house and so the kids get dropped off at the house and then there's a nanny who takes care of the kids and i know how many kids to nanny ratio puts me into a daycare situation so i just make sure i don't exceed that ratio and so i have so i have all my staff have they don't have to worry about childcare and the house is just down the road from the practice and it's awesome if they if they want to have lunch with their kids they can go have lunch with their kids and i'm like oh this is so amazing i'm like yeah this is awesome and i said then i said and again this is this shows you my biases well that's great for small animal practice what about large animal practice she looks at me she goes oh i'm not a small animal practitioner what oh no i'm in beef cattle practice Okay, so if it can work in beef cattle practice, why are we not? And and so I talked to her afterwards because I'm like, what? This is amazing. She said, I have zero turnover. I have a waiting list for the people who want to work for me. And I've got all these old guys. And she's in rural Texas. All these old guys who want to, she says, I now have three practices. I can't take on any more practices. I'm making more money than I know what to do with. And the only change I made was I provided child care for my employees and my associates. So how's that for innovation?
2: And that's an right easy,
0: that, like she, she's like, I just figured it out. Yep. That's what I want. That's what we value in our, that's a core value. Now, it's not to say that that would work for everybody, but right. that's turnover, like she has, I have zero turnover. And our,
2: our, our industry is horrible for turnover. Totally. Horrible.
0: Yep. Because we don't pay, we don't. provide, you know, of course that people are going to try to find other jobs, but if you start to look at what do people want, what causes them to feel like they are valued, a part of the team, um, moving, they're bought into what we're doing, then the money comes. Right. And we do it backwards. That's, That's my opinion.
2: So let's jump off of that train of thought, and I just want to pick up on something. You mentioned a couple of times. I'm getting the sense that you talked about some of the influence in your life, and, and Drake clearly was a big, huge, big influence. Yep. And you mentioned the last three years have been kind of turbulent. Yes. Do you want to tell Absolutely. us a bit more about that?
0: So, and so he, Drake and I started dating when we were we met when we were 14, freshman in high school. Started dating when we were 17. Um, got married when we were barely 20. In uh, January-ish of 2017, he was diagnosed with ALS, and so we walked a two, roughly two-and-a-half journey, two-and-a-half-year journey through ALS. He passed away in January of this year. And so that has totally changed. Well, I shouldn't say that. It hasn't totally changed. My perspective, but what it has changed is walking through that. It was the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life, and it was the most in my life. And so, and and it was a spiritual journey, a faith journey. Uh, I can say God is good all the time, even in the midst of intense suffering. Intense suffering. Um, I, you know, it's one of those things. And my husband, my husband was so brave. It was his biggest fear from the time he was in third grade. ALS. I'll die from anything, but not ALS. And so a lot of people would say, "Oh, God has a really awful sense of." Um, But Drake knew it was ALS way before the doctors confirmed that it was that um, diagnosis. And so when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you have to get real very fast, very quickly. And so for me, what I think the I mean, there's so many lessons that I learned as I walked through this with him. But one of the things I I think the biggest shift I have today. And wherever I am today, I'm going to be all in and present. And I don't worry too much about what happened yesterday. Don't dwell on that. And I, although I'm a planner and I like to try to control and organize, when you, when God says, okay, we're going to, so if you'd asked Drake, what's your biggest fear? ALS. Betsy, what's your biggest fear? Being without Drake. Not having Drake. So, okay, let's walk right into the middle of your biggest fears, and I will meet you there. And here's what I want you to gain from that. And early on, Drake would say, "If I, you know, we, our whole lives were changed. But I think that's where change happens, is in the furnace of affliction, right? We don't like that, but that's where it happens. And so if I, I remember, gosh, we were probably six months in. And I don't know if anybody out there, if you have, ALS is a brutal, relentless and it takes everything from you. And so my husband was six, seven, very strong, charismatic, amazing human being, like amazing human being. And it took everything from him. And he was radiant and joyful and peaceful through the whole thing. That's why I can sit here because I had his example of what does it look like to walk into your biggest fear and be okay. But one of the things he said, probably six, seven months in, might have been walking with a cane by this time. If I could go back and push a button and go back to where we were before this diagnosis, but if by pushing that button I have to give up everything I've learned to this point, I wouldn't push it. That's intense. Hugely intense. And he had this connection with the holy that was something I've never seen before. It was like there were times, like if I could, there were times where we just all kind of, those of us who walked in the journey, really closely, we just wanted to sit at his feet because he was like he had one foot in heaven and one foot on earth and i when I was just little Padwan sitting watching, like, "How are you doing this?" It was amazing but when I was wife, devastating yeah. right, and so navigating those two things, um we learned oh uh, this is what I learned life is this magic dance between the good and the terrible, right, and so c s Lewis in The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe said. Those who have not been to Narnia cannot know, don't know that a thing can be good and terrible at the same time. And so to me, life is the tension between good and terrible and learning how to navigate that. What we don't like to do as people is acknowledge the terrible and sit in that and let I mean, and I, I believe that God prepared me for this, has been preparing me for this for my whole life. But like that's what I've been doing for 15 years is teaching veterinarians how to be resilient. So, I know what to do. I know, does it make it easier? No, no. But I know that I got to let the feeling, I got to feel the feels, I got to sit in them, I have to acknowledge them, and then I have to have a strategy that moves me forward. Because if I, and, and I know, like right now, and again, I, I'm very good at self awareness, and sometimes I over process, right? Like sometimes I just have to let it go. But um, I don't need, I don't want to spin spiral. Into negativity i'm I'm always going to try to be moving forward, and what can I learn and how can I grow? One of the things I know is I don't so for me, there's truth which is higher, and there's reality. The reality of my life is I'm without my most favorite person in the world that sucks, and I hate it. But there's a bigger truth that I'm trying to understand, and it's a mysterious truth that's that none of us can wrap our heads around, right. And so it's that there's truth and reality. When I'm tired, I can't see truth. So I know now one of the, the, so for me, that's kind of the deal breaker. If I start to get tired, that's when the voice is in the head, like, everybody loved Drake, nobody loved you, you have nothing to offer, blah, blah, blah. And he was my truth speaker, so I've lost my truth speaker. But I've replaced him with some really good friends, many of whom are in this room. So when I need them, I can say I need you to speak truth. I need you to tell me who I am because I don't see it. But I know when the when I'm tired, that's when I would say my my stance is That's when the enemy comes at me when yeah. I'm tired. And so I know go to bed. And the enemy's within. Yeah. And then I can. And then I know his mercies are new in the morning. Yeah. And so when I'm rested and I wake up in the morning, then I can start to see truth again. Right. And so for me, I wouldn't change anything. I miss him every day. I miss him every day. You don't start, like, I don't know. We were having a great conversation about, like, my identity. I've been Drake's wife since I was 20. I'm 47. Like, you don't. Unmesh. And, and nor do I want to. And so then the other thing I've learned through this process, we suck at grief we oh, don't know how to sit with people. We don't know how to have those conversations. And to me, it just dovetails onto the whole issue that our profession has. We don't like to sit and fail. We don't, we don't like hard things. We don't know how to deal with them. We don't have the, the skill sets to you, deal with them.
2: You used the word earlier, the feels. And yeah. I've heard that said by a few people. Yeah. I mean, this is emotional intelligence we're talking mm-hmm. about now.
0: Yep. absolutely.
2: But as you were speaking there, and you know, it's always hard to speak, actually, it's so emotional I can see everyone's kind of yeah, like uh, yeah. filling up there, so I mean firstly thought and thank I you love that.
0: that yeah, because I want us to sit in that yeah, and I want it to be borderline uncomfortable, yeah, because I want us to know that we can be borderline uncomfortable, and we can move forward from it, and that's a beautiful that's navigating the tension between the good and the terrible
2: so so many questions and and I mean thank you for sharing something so profound and impactful. Yeah. The, the, I think one of the one of the questions that I have there is how because it's almost hard to even get my head around the you know the, the journey's not the right word but that that navigation mm-hmm. between those those so closely intertwined things. How did how did you do that in the dark ways? You have mentioned faith, and perhaps yeah, that's a uh, huge part you'd of it. You expand was faith. upon, but uh, yeah. That a so bit.
0: so for me, it was faith, and it was the tr- it was trusting that. I mean, it was a shift to, and that this is what this is what the relentless nature of ALS is like. So you you have to be thinking a little bit like, okay, what are we going to do when he can't drive anymore? what are we going to do when he can't button his shirt anymore? what are we when i'm going to get i haven't gotten emotional about it for a while but um what are we going to do when he can't go up and down the stairs anymore? right so you have to um for us we just had to say what do we have to do today like i live today yeah. I, that's all i've been promised yeah and i am super thankful because i got to walk two and a half journey with my two and a half year journey with my very favorite person. So we did it together and it wasn't a, an abrupt loss, right? So there's, there is, even though we were hopeful, like, God, can you, you can make him well if you wanted to. And there was a, there was a, um, there was kind of for me from a faith standpoint, there was this time where we believe God was speaking to us and he was telling us Drake was going to be healed in hindsight and in retrospect. I think part of that was a tender mercy for Drake. Because you can't walk through this disease if you don't have hope. Yeah. And so he needed hope to be able to, to navigate. I can't button my shirt by myself anymore. And so, and I, because I just love him so much, I'm like, I'll button your shirt, babe. I got it. I'll quit my job. I, I'll i do it. And so you have to, so it's an, a daily, daily, daily thing. And you can't look too far in the in forward. And then there was a transition that happened. So he and I went on a 40-day sabbatical where we told, we went to the middle of Texas. We found this little Airbnb right by a river that would accommodate. At that time, he was walking with a walker. We were kind of almost making the transition to where he had to be in some sitting in a wheelchair um, more permanently. But he could still walk a little bit. Um, and I could be, We. Could be, it was the last time that I could care for him on my own. And so we had this Wonderful forty days of really. We just said we're we're going to shut down everything and we're going to s- seek what the Lord has for us and what, yeah. what does He want? And that's where we had a shift from healing to the healer. So it's not the healing that's the center of our uh, our emphasis. It's the healer. And when you make that shift, then. You can say okay what do you want me to do today and so my whole this is what i do every morning since i don't know even probably since january 1st 2018 what do you want me to know what do you want me to do? and and quieting myself enough to be able to listen to that so like today i had to there were only two th- three things on my schedule so I'm going to introduce, I'm going to talk a little bit about the facilitation stuff. I'm going to introduce two awesome speakers, and then I'm going to be done. Okay, what else? And I'm going to sit. Whoever whoever the Lord brings into my space, I'm going to be fully present with them. I had lunch with a great um, person that I just met and has a company that might be able to do some stuff with. We might be able to partner on some things. That was awesome. Then I get to spend time with my VLI peeps who are here doing facilitation and and have great conversations but i'm 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 all in wherever today do i have stuff that i gotta get done yeah does it really matter no until it matters and then i get it done and i it's a it's transformed so i'm a different person today than i was so december 7th was what we call our descent into darkness That's the day that we, so we had thought, right. Oh, it's just a, so it's fun. It's, it's an interesting story, right? So we used we have a um, hill by our house that we hike and to get to the hill, it's like a mile and a half straight up this hill. It's great. But it's like three blocks to get there on cement. We're walking there one day and I'm like, babe, you're off. Your right foot is hitting harder than your left foot. You're lame. And he's like, oh yeah, I got, you know, my back. So I heard it. I heard that he was limping. Yeah he's like, oh, yeah, it's my back. You know, maybe it's a disc. And so they, you know, we kind of got, he described it, we got ping-ponged around, you know, and maybe it's a lumbar disc issue. And December 7th, we met with a neurosurgeon because things kept getting worse. Yep. And so we're thinking maybe he's got a disc. He needs to have surgery. And I remember sitting in the, med- in the doctor's office, and I was watching him, and I'm like, he is doing a neuro exam, and he's trying to localize the lesion to central or peripheral, yeah. and it's localizing central. And so, I, so the, he finished his exam, and he's like, okay, I need an MRI of his uh, brain, cervicals. He'd had lumbar done, but he said, I want an MRI of his brain, his cervical spine, and his thoracic spine stat. And then he walked out of the room. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I'm right back in here, and you need to tell me, because I know what you just did. You localized that lesion to a central lesion. You tell me what your differential list is. Yeah. And he wouldn't. He put everything on it except ALS. I knew. We all, and Drake knew. He knew. And so that's our descent into darkness. So December 7th, 2016, there's a now I have a before and an after. So before December 7th, 2016, there was a Betsy, and now there's an after Betsy. And that's a transformed Betsy. And I would say it's transformed by Christ. I don't force that on you. I just say, that's my reality, and there's nothing you can do. And I would,
2: well, and and Betsy, I tell you what, if there's any dry eyes in this house right now, it's, uh, but thank you. You know, we're glad you're the Betsy. I mean, I've just met you and I'm like, man, how have I not met you and spoken to you before (laughs) now, right? This is, and you are all in. (laughs) There's no question in that. So, Betsy, like, and everyone, he's kind of getting on a bit later, and this is is so great. I, I could literally keep talking. For hours but I'm kind of like aware everybody's got yeah, places yeah. to be so so what we wind up usually I blunt this section with There's some some slightly lighter okay
0: good quick <laughs> quick yeah, okay. So quick fire great, questions okay, let's, let's surface quick, from the depth yeah let's come up and, and quick fire questions yes.
2: and so these are the quick fire questions and you can answer them short or long however okay. you like and there's not too many so um I, I like to ask this question what was the most best piece of advice you've ever been
0: um, that comes from the journey that God is near and not silent. So listen to him. So for, for me, it's this idea that being near and not silent is important, whether that's with the holy, whether that's with each other, whether that's with ourselves, right? right. And so that's kind of my the legacy thing. Like if you're interested, you can count, You can go to nearandnotsilent.com. That's our, but to me, that is, the, and, and that comes from Drake. Right. So that is he's just like, we know, for us, it was a that that there's something bigger than us that's near and not silent. But then what I love is when I'm near and not silent with others. It changes the world. That's so to me, that's near and not silent.
2: All right. And then the flip side of that is what's the worst piece of advice? And you've either been given or you've given someone else.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Um, I think the worst. The word any anything that came from a dream squasher, like I don't like dream squashers.
2: What's a dream squasher?
0: So if you if like you, dream, you squashers. dream squashers they so you share what you're thinking of and you're dreaming of and they're like well you know oh, that'll never happen. Like, yeah. That. So Got I don't it. so anybody who gives any sort of advice that's going to squash my dream. So as, as an example, when I was trying to get my alternative track resident right. ready. I went, you know, I was trying to find schools that would be willing to let me do rotation. And so I remember meeting, I will not say the school or the name of this person, um, but I met with a very well-known radiologist and I was talking about what I wanted to do and why I wanted to do it. So I want to do a non-traditional residency because I love my husband and I want to stay in the same state as him and he cannot move from Southern California. So I need to... And he said, and this is what he said, "Oh, you newlyweds." I'm like, no, I've been married 17 years, so that doesn't qualify as newlyweds oh, st- status. And so it doesn't have anything to do with that. It has to do with I value my relationship with my husband. And he said, "This is this. Well, if you really cared, you would do a real resident. That's a dream squasher. I don't like that. Any advice, that comes to <laughs> All
2: right." <laughs> Um do you have a a favorite or a recent book that's been very impactful for you that you think would be useful for us to dip dip so into? That's
0: such a good question. Um so one of the things well, that's been one of my in the process, um I've given myself a lot of space and time to um so it's been just a little over eight months since Drake passed away and I, I'm still I'm the executive director of the Veterinary Institute and I have an incredible team that I get to and they have over the last two and a half, three years really filled in where I have available. And so I'm just starting, you know, I gave myself lots of time off. Fortunately, I'm not in a position where I have to work. And so one of the most important things myself so sometimes the hardness of reality. I have to be careful not to escape to it too often. So in the last weeks I've probably read about a book so i will tell you read or listen to 11 books so i just read educated which was fabulous so that was a really interesting book but there's a book that i read yeah, i'm gonna go grab one so
2: i can I think look you at the list it. you're mic'd up so you can do listen, um, your bed's in you can do yeah. whatever the hell you want in this room right now
0: dare to lead by Brené brown is that i've actually read that one twice in the last eight months because it's that impactful it's a very practical look at leadership to uh fiction books that were awesome the great alone women and stuff like i i have a whole reading is my jam so i read a lot there's the book that i'm thinking of is actually one one that i held in my hand i don't have the audiobook version of it but it was it was a it was a christian book that kind of i struggle with american Christianity and the the prosperity gospel and that everything's supposed to be awesome and you know, rainbows like that is not what the Bible says, nor does it say that Jesus only likes to hang out with certain kinds of people. It's actually the opposite of that and so there was the the book has I'll have to find it but it's like a it's this idea that actually suffering is where the suffering is where things happen, and actually, maybe one of the most profound books I've read recently um in this journey. Uh, is called a severe mercy, and so that's a. It's a. It's essentially the story of Drake and I, except it's another. It's the husband lose. The husband is the widower, and he loses his wife to cancer at a young age. And one of the thing, and it it resonates for me because I think. And this might be way too theological for people, and I apologize. But this is this is the this is the profound truth that I have come to realize that. Had Drake been healed, because really Drake was my Jesus. He was an incredible influence in my life. And so had he been healed, I think he would have still been Jesus and Jesus would have been healed. And so he said to me, Drake said to me early on, he said, Hey, this isn't about me, this is about you. Which I hated, I didn't like that. And then he said, if the only reason that I'm going through this, the only reason that I am having to endure this suffering is so that you would know Christ, I'm crucified. If that's the only i do it again in a heartbeat. And so that book is about, that's a severe mercy of a loving God. That's pretty. Sure. So that book, it rocked my world. But it also, it, one of the things that I think made Drake and I so unique is that we were partners, and he believed in the beauty of my, of my dreams as much as I believed in his, and we worked this partnership out. And so that book, the writer is a phenomenal writer, and he told, he told my, my and Drake's story through his story, and it was, it rocked. Me.
2: Such a, it's beautiful to hear about the relationship Guys, had next question. We got two more. Last okay, two, and I, right. I
0: will not be profound and sad and you, deep.
2: Anymore. You can do whatever you like, <laughs> right, like
0: it. A, I recognize, but that's my that's my rea- that's that's where I'm at.
2: It's all good. If you could give one piece of, of advice to yourself back at graduation, given everything you have graduation
0: you can, from vet school,
2: graduation from vet school, well, you, you can choose graduation, okay, whichever one you want. What would the piece of advice be?
0: You are the beloved daughter of the Most High King. You are nothing, no matter what.
2: All right, and maybe it might be that this would be the thing. The last question is if you could send a. Do you prefer Twitter or Instagram or.
0: I'm learning how to have a social media preference. Facebook is probably like right. I'm old school that, but I'm learning Insta. You,
2: okay. I saw you on Insta. Yeah, Insta. I'm, we I'm learning. I'm trying right. to learn how to be an Insta. We'll be Insta besties Yeah, I'm trying
0: to learn how to communicate via Insta.
2: All right. So you can choose. It can be Facebook as well. But if you could send one message and you can beam it and every phone in the world lights up that message, what would that message be?
0: Near and not silent with
2: somebody. All right. And um, Betsy, if you would like people to follow you on Insta or Facebook or Get in touch. You don't have to give an answer now if you prefer. Nobody do any of those things. Yeah, but no, that's what I, I
0: am. I am interested in whoever wants to, like, whoever wants Who to. Who wants to dance. Chat, yeah. Get
2: it on. So where, where can people follow you and get in touch better? So
0: I think that there's a couple places. So Veterinary Leadership Institute is definitely one of those places. We are trying to change the world. Um, and so the more people that we can have helping us change the world in the veterinary profession. Of that so that's vli leaders at vli leaders i think it's at vli underscore leaders on insta my personal instagram is Betsy 71 70 71 is the best number ever because that's the year i was born
2: i was going to say it's close but not quite no? yeah because yeah. 76 is a little yeah better, betsy seventy
0: one seventy one is the is my personal stuff and bessie charles on facebook but yeah right. just just dm me or pm me.
2: DM or PM I
0: don't I don't totally know what that means. DM me
2: in the PM Yeah, I you
0: know, but I I mean it's one of those things, right? Like as I'm learning as I'm learning what's what's my new what's my new identity in this in this life without Drake's physical presence. He will always be with me and he's with me every day, but physically and so one of the things that God has said very clearly to me, anybody asks you to have a conversation, you always say yes. So it doesn't matter who you are, if you want to talk. I will say yes. It might. You might have to. We might have to schedule something. But <laughs> I will say yes yeah. because I'm on the road. I travel a lot. I've got a crazy schedule. But I will say yes. Yeah.
2: Betty, I just want to. I want to say thank you for being you. Thanks. I can't say more than that. Um, and thank you all for coming. Can yeah, we give poor hands together? What a, what a great person.
1: So thank you so much to Betsy for that amazing interview. Uh, However you're feeling just now, uplifted, inspired, pensive, thoughtful. Please shout Betsy out. Show her some love. She is an incredible woman. And don't forget, if you have any ability to give to support our colleagues in Australia, a small amount of cash, every little helps. Hit the ava.com.au forward slash donate and give some money to the Benevolent Fund. Until next time, this is Dr. Dave signing off from another episode of Blunt Dissection Podcast. Be safe, be well, and be happy.